Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Gavin Esler. Boris Johnson may be heading for the dustbin of history, but while we're all focused on the endless Conservative Party psychodrama, should we also note that the Johnson legacy could include helping the Union of the United Kingdom to break up? That at least was the view of former Conservative Chancellor George Osborne, who wrote that Johnson could become the worst Prime Minister in British history, worse even than Lord North, who lost the American colonies. Whatever you think of Mr Johnson's legacy, his titanic Brexit success, as he once put it, has certainly spurred Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, to announce she intends to hold a second independence referendum next October, if her government secures the legal approval to stage it. But with Westminster saying now is not the time and her most senior legal adviser refusing to authorise proposals to hold a vote, will Indiref 2 actually happen? And if so, what will it mean not just for Scotland but for the rest of the UK? Joining me to discuss what the future holds for Sturgeon after eight years as First Minister and the rest of us is Ian McQuirter, political commentator for The Herald and author of Disunited Kingdom. Hello Ian, how are you doing? Hi there, hi. Um, Can we begin with the mechanics of all this? Um, The First Minister says she wants Indiref 2 in October 2023. So what are the obstacles? What's stopping her? Well, the most obvious is that the Scottish Parliament does not have the constitutional right to hold a referendum because anything to do with the British Constitution, anything to do with relations between the two parliaments is reserved to Westminster. So that means that Westminster has to give its agreement Um, And it gives its agreement through what is called a Section 30 order. This was the mechanism that was uh, agreed in 2012 between uh, Alex Salmond and uh, David Cameron to allow, it kind of delegates the power to hold this referendum to the Scottish Parliament, and therefore it's allowed to hold a legally binding referendum. Now, that's not going to happen, not just because Boris Johnson has refused to entertain the idea, but so has Keir Starmer. And there is zero chance of this bill when it's put through the Scottish Parliament, if it is put through the Scottish Parliament, there is zero chance of this being endorsed uh, in Westminster. So uh, faced with that obstacle, uh, Nicola Sturgeon is trying to do, well, a novel legal route to see if she can get the Supreme Court of the UK to agree that there is, it is within the power of the Scottish Parliament perhaps not to authorise um, a full-scale independence referendum, but to authorise an advisory referendum, a sort of test of opinion. But as you alluded there, the, the Lord Advocate in Scotland clearly thinks that, that even that would be out with the powers of the Scottish Parliament. So her expectation is, is not great that the Supreme Court will even look at the matter, let alone give a ruling in favour of Nicola Sturgeon. Right. So so the courts could say that's not for us. That's effectively for the politicians. The politicians have decided, as you've said. But uh, Ms. Sturgeon seems to think if there's not a way around it, there's a way of using it to say at the next general election, whenever that comes, we're going to run on seeking a mandate for a referendum. Is that is that right? Because I know you've been writing about that this week. Uh, yeah, basically, that's, that's correct. I mean, I think Nicola Sturgeon, I, I don't think she has any great hopes of the of the, even though the, the Supreme Court is actually chaired by a Scot at the moment, Lord Reid, uh, I don't think that there's really much expectation in the Scottish government that it's going to turn around and say, yeah, go ahead, have a referendum. It's the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. It seems unlikely that it would collude with anything which is likely to break up that union. So I think this is looked to, to be looked at more like a kind of 
piece of constitutional theatre, really. I mean, this goes through the, the mechanism of the courts. And in the process, there's lots of opportunity for the Scottish government to complain. It's being ignored and it has a democratic mandate from various elections that it's already it's already had, where the SNP has won. The SNP is, is extremely uh, successful in Scotland. It dominates politics at every level. Um, and, you know, they, this will be another opportunity, another forum perhaps, for them to make the case for a referendum and to say that Westminster has no right to deny the democratic rights of the Scottish people. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting point. Um, uh, the SNP have been in power in Scotland since 2007. The First Minister has been there herself for for eight years. So what, what can she gain out of this? I mean, is it a kind of, as some people suggest, essentially the politics of grievance, where this is something to keep the party together, and particularly those who, who, who you know, would like an independence referendum tomorrow? Uh, what's in it for her? Well, yeah, she has real problems in the party because... Um, yeah, you know the the SNP. It's it's, I mean, just a measure of its of its influence in Scotland. I mean, it has more MPs than all the unionist parties put together. It has more MSPs than all the unionist parties put together, and it has it dominates local governments, even making advances in local government. All these fully thirteen years after it first uh, it first entered government. So you know this is. They've been around a long time. They keep winning elections. They keep saying this is a mandate. And Nicola Sturgeon says, you know, we'll be able to to get a referendum eventually. Or or rather, she demands a referendum on the basis of that mandate. But she's not going to get it because, as I say, the constitutional situation is pretty clear. Um, You know, she can make a moral case for another referendum. But, you know, in 2014, it was very clear. I mean, everybody saw the white paper on independence. It said that this was a once-in-a-generation event, uh, and a generation is, is is a lot longer than than just eight years. So, um, you know, they're not going to get any anything that way. So what she's decided, using this theatre of the courts, if you like, to generate more uh, sort of controversy in the run-up to the next general election. And what she's saying is that she's going to turn that general election into a de facto referendum. And she says there will just be a manifesto, will just have one line, it'll be saying vote SNP because we want an independence referendum. Um, and she's saying that if she gets uh, more than 50% of the votes, that that will constitute uh, an actual referendum. I mean, of course it won't, because you can't just turn a general election into a, a single-issue referendum just by saying it. But uh, she seems to believe, or her party seems to believe, that um, this would create such a powerful moral message that the UK government would at least have to start discussing when to have the next uh, referendum, you know, maybe within the next five years, something like that. That's a possibility, because, you know... The Scots keep voting for the SNP, and the SNP is the party of independence, and it's, it can that can really only go on for a, for for a certain length of time before I think the, the issue has to be addressed again. Let me put to you how some of this may be seen by Scottish voters or not even SNP voters, which is Scotland has not voted for a Conservative government since the 1950s. We are, in Scotland, they might say, 
somehow disenfranchised because uh, England gets the government, whatever it is, whatever way we we vote. And Boris Johnson has been exceptionally good for the SNP cause because I've talked to a couple of Scottish Tories, quite well known, known to you, who said to me independently, every time he comes here, we die a little bit inside. Um, So those kind of arguments are still powerful, aren't they? Well, yes. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about it. Boris Johnson has been the SNP's greatest recruiting sergeant. I mean, even more than Margaret Thatcher, who's a bit distant in history now. But I mean, Boris Johnson, it's everything about him, his very personality, his plummy accent. Uh, He represents everything about the English public school elite. In a way, for for nationalists in Scotland, you're allowed to be anti-English. You're allowed to hate him as as, as what he represents without being accused of being Anglophobic. At least that's how they see it. You know, he's the one Englishman you're allowed to hate. And uh, he is hated, I mean, you know, right across the board. He's extremely unpopular in Scotland, even more than south of the border. But um, Boris Johnson is gone now. And this is a, is a problem for the SNP because, you know, he represented so much of what they said they were opposed to in the Westminster system. And the situation is, is very different. I mean, Labour is now 11 points ahead in the UK in the latest YouGov poll. So it could very well be that come 2024, this general election, which is she wants to turn into a referendum on independence, it might be more like a referendum on Keir Starmer. Because if there is a prospect of there being a Labour government in Westminster, and remember, this is a UK general election, um, a lot of people in Scotland will think, well, I should be voting Labour, not SNP in this election. I should be voting Labour because I want to get the Tories out of Westminster. If I vote SNP, I could take votes away um, and it, it, it was always said that Labour needed votes in Scotland, needed seats in Scotland if it was to form a government. So this is a real problem, I think, for the SNP now, because they backed themselves into this corner. They were assuming that Boris Johnson or someone like him was going to be pretty much unassailable in the next general election in 2024. But with this change in the political balance of power in Westminster, it's not looking so good. And remember, if she doesn't get this 50% now, if she said this is a de facto referendum and we want to get over 50%, if she doesn't get over 50%, then people are going to say, um, well, hang on, you've had your second independence referendum and they've Scotland voted no. So you don't need another Indiref 2. Right. And that's, that's the trap that she may have fallen into. There is one other line of argument, though, which may have perished with Boris Johnson, but may not, which is this. Um, Chris Patton, Lord Patton, Conservative grandee, uh, George Osborne himself, in different ways, have said Boris Johnson represents English nationalism. And English nationalism is not confined to Boris Johnson within the Conservative Party. So in other words, we have potentially some competing nationalisms at the next election. And some Scots might say, we're going to get another English nationalist government that doesn't really speak for the United Kingdom. And that's an argument which is I've heard from unionists in Northern Ireland as well, including Ian Paisley, DUP MP. So what do you you make of that? Or do you think that that English nationalist uh, streak, which has co-opted UKIP in the past, and Boris Johnson has been rather brilliant at doing that, do you think that dies with Boris Johnson? Um, I don't think it dies. Uh, Keir Starmer is a bit of an English nationalist nowadays. At any rate, he likes to stand before the flag. He likes to assert, you know, and insist on his patriotism. Um, and he's very, very hostile to Scottish independence. So you could say that, I mean, a lot of people have suggested this, that really what has happened over the past 20 years is that you've had a corresponding English nationalism 
arising to, to be the equivalent of, of Scottish nationalism. I mean, it, it's very possible that, that Boris Johnson's replacement, if it's someone like Liz Truss, um, uh, could, could well be seen as very much an English nationalist. But I don't think they will ever have quite the same, I don't know, uh, negative standing here that uh, Boris Johnson occupies. Also, he was seen, he's seen as the architect of Brexit, and of course, Scotland voted to remain in the EU. Um, and once he goes, the Tory party will still be pro-Brexit. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But it won't be seen as being quite so um, militantly Brexit. And Nigel Farage has sort of departed the scene. In fact, I think we're beginning to see Brexit sort of slip away as being the great deciding factor in, in politics north and south of the border. And as I say, the, you know, it's, it's more that the, the kind of configuration of power in Westminster looks like it could well be changing. Scots have successively voted in elections and got, uh, found themselves with governments in Westminster, which they haven't voted for. This time it could be different. They could be getting a, a kind of government that they do want to vote for, which is a Labour government. So um, I think that's, that's going to be more of an issue for them than um, simply presenting the Tories as, you know, the English Nationalist Party. Ed Miliband, as you remember, uh, in 2015 was stitched up very neatly by being shown in Alex Salmon's, the SNP leader then, in his pocket. It's the implication of what you're saying that Keir Starmer has played it wisely, at least in terms of the majority of voters in England, by saying we'll never do a deal with the SNP. That's completely off the table and he's taken it off quite robustly. Yes, he has. And actually that's had a kind of perverse consequences in Scotland because so averse is Keir Starmer to any hint of association at any level with the SNP that um, Anna Sarwar, the Scottish Labour leader, had to say before the local government elections that he would under no circumstances form a coalition with any party, meaning basically the SNP, uh, anywhere in Scotland. And since local government in Scotland is elected in a proportional system, that was a, a rather crazy thing to say because nearly all administrations, the local administrations, are actually coalitions. So he had to come out and say, no, we're not going to have any. And I think this has a lot to do with the absolute obsession that Labour has now of avoiding any taint of being the party which could coalesce with the SNP uh, to form a government. I and mean, they realised that that would be absolute death. It was, it was death for for Ed Miliband, and it would be again. I mean, it, it didn't actually it didn't help Jeremy Corbyn. He had been many other problems, of course, but um, he had sort of hinted that there might be some kind of cooperation, and that, that certainly didn't do Labour any good. But anyway, there's going to be tremendous uh, efforts in the next 18 months to disown Nicola Sturgeon and to make sure that she does not seem to be in any way uh, going to be sharing government in, in Westminster. Could Labour save the union? I mean, is that, a, is that a sales pitch that they could make? You know, it was the Conservative and Unionist Party. Boris Johnson's changed that. Brexit's changed that. We, the Labour Party, could save the union. And would that be a big vote, wouldn't it? I think people realise the, the, the way the election is, is likely to fall, that the SNP will have a large number of uh, seats. It's online to replicate the result of the 2015, it was called the tsunami election, because the SNP won... 56 out of 59 seats in Scotland. Mind you, it's, it's worth saying that that's 56 out of 59 Scottish seats, and yet they only just shaved 50% of the vote. So that's the measure of how difficult it is actually to get more than 50% of the vote in, in, in an election in Scotland. 
I mean, you know, however, that, that aside, um, I think that it, there will just be a united front, basically, by the, the Tories and Labour saying that they're going to save the union by excluding the SNP from any sharing of power and not re- accepting uh, any calls for an independence referendum. And I suspect that would happen even if the SNP did get more than 50% um, of the vote, which I say I think is, is actually now looking rather unlikely. I think the, the two parties in Westminster would simply say, well, no, this, is a, this was a general election. It's not, it wasn't, you may say it was about, it was a de facto referendum. We, we don't accept that. People were voting for all sorts of reasons and independence may be one of them, but it wasn't the only reason people were voting. And you can't just look into people's heads and assume that they were actually voting on what you said they were going to be voting on. And so just, just to sum up then, uh, your, your sense is there will not be a legally sanctioned uh, independence referendum uh, that, or at least that is unlikely, in which case uh, the legacy of Nicola Sturgeon will be how well she has managed things in Scotland. And that is presumably, as it is everywhere, a matter of real debate because quite a few people think she's not done very well on that. Yeah, it's different. You know, all governments, you know, if they're in, in power for any length of time, acquire a lot of negatives. And the SNP does have a lot of negatives. Um, you know, she, she in 2015, she said she wanted to be uh, judged on her uh, performance in narrowing the educational attainment gap between rich and poor areas in Scotland. And that gap is pretty much as wide as ever. It's, 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 if there is any narrowing, it's, it's glacial. Uh, and that's, you know, Audit Scotland has, has that's what, it, what its, its assessment is. So it's, there, there's very little to say there. There's been some, some really bad um, economic uh, developments. Most obviously, this, the fiasco of the ferries, which are meant to be, uh, deployed for the many island routes in, in Scotland. Uh, they were being built by Ferguson Marine, which was a company which was owned by a businessman who was very supportive of the SNP, uh, Jim McCall. He has um, departed the scene, and it's been an on-running crisis ever since then. They were meant to cost something like 90 um, million. They're now over 450 million. It looks like they may even end up being scrapped. That there's that. There's other things as well. Um, you know, Scotland, as you probably are aware, has prodigious renewable energy off its shores, particularly wind. But the Scottish government has not managed to get much of that, much of the work constructing the towers and the wind turbines. Very little of that is going to Scotland. It's all being imported from abroad. Very different to what happened in the 1970s during the last energy boom, the oil boom. When you had, and you know, some of the largest man-made structures ever made, these um, incredibly large um, uh, oil platforms were being floated out from Kishore in Scotland. Um, now that's just not happening this time, and people are thinking, "Well, what's what's happening here?" You know. Um, so there's there's lots of trouble, um, and uh, they're, they're having all sorts of issues as well. I mean, the kind of issues that brought down Boris Johnson actually because of the. What's some of the sexual anti- activity and the sexual behaviour of some of their members of parliament has not been uh, entirely pe- impeccable. Uh, well, there there is a part of the Union of the United Kingdom which seems to be something that, well, unfortunately, is, is all too common. It is. Ian, thank you very much for joining us. Ian McQuirta there. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also support our work on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Podcast. I'm Gavin Esler. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was presented by Gavin Esler with audio production from me Robin Lieber The producers are Jacob Archold and Yelena Sofronevich Assistant producer Kasia Tomasevich Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis Group editor Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. Bunker is a Podmasters production.